I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Galatians chapters 1 through 3. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Let's begin with an introduction to the book of Galatians. Around 50 AD or so, true Christianity was struggling with some vital questions. At first, the church was a Jewish-only entity, but as Gentiles began to get saved, several questions needed answering. What about the law of Moses? What part does it play in salvation? And what about keeping the law of Moses after salvation? And what about salvation for the Gentiles who've never heard of or have never kept the law of Moses? Well, the book of Galatians deals with these very questions. Within the boundaries of modern-day Turkey, Galatia was located approximately 400 miles northwest of Jerusalem across the Mediterranean Sea, although a 600-mile trip by foot north and then west would also get you there. Now, this is important. Galatians was written on the heels of the Jerusalem Council that's recorded in Acts chapter 15. You simply cannot get the proper perspective on the study of the book of Galatians until you thoroughly understand the context, and that context is framed by the dispute and the resolution at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. The challenges faced there are completely resolved with the writing of this epistle, to some of the very same people, by the way, about whom the dispute arose in the first place. We begin with chapter 1, A Greeting. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, Paul wastes no time setting the ground rules for his remarks in the book of Galatians. In verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle. Then he points out, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, the content of this letter, the book of Galatians, is a direct message. Apostle, by the way, means messenger. It's a direct message from Jesus Christ, and it's to be regarded as such. Paul's own apostleship is a subject that Paul later gives significant attention to in his writing to the Corinthians. And if you're curious about that, then look at my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 4, Paul refers to this present evil age. So the question arises, what made that age so evil? The answer is to be found in Paul's later writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says there. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the source of evil in this world, then and now, well, that's Satan. 
It's not what Paul says in his greeting here that's so unusual, but rather what he does not say. In his other epistles to churches, he mentions their faith in Jesus Christ in the introduction, but not to these churches. He simply says in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. Perhaps that is explained in verse 6. It appears that he may be purposely not commending them on their faith, and we'll read verse 6 in just a moment. Chapter 1, beginning now the verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The problem in Galatia was the presence and teaching of people called Judaizers from Jerusalem. These people insisted on adding various mixes of Judaism to salvation among the Gentiles. In their minds, salvation through Christ was an extension of the religion held by the Jews for hundreds of years. They believed that Judaism was the path to salvation in Christ. Paul had completely rejected this notion in his preaching to the Gentiles. In fact, the gospel message Paul had been preaching was one of salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior, nothing else added. Notice verse 6. It says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. These Galatians were being bombarded by those who were preaching a different gospel, a message that added works to getting and keeping salvation. Perhaps they'd been influenced by this teaching to the point that Paul declined to commend them on their faith in his letter introduction. There's an interesting distinction between two phrases in verses 6 and 7. The term, a different gospel, of verse 6, is sharply contrasted to his warning in verse 7 where he says, which is not another. The Greek adjective for different in verse 6 is heteros, meaning another or another of a different kind. The underlying Greek word for another in verse 7 is alos, meaning another of the same kind. While it's difficult to make an absolute distinction in the two words when used independently, when used together as they are here, Paul's indicating that the different gospel of verse 6 is an unacceptable salvation message as opposed to an acceptable variation in style that may sometimes be preached, as we see in verse 7. So let's explain it like this. These people were preaching a salvation message of a different or a perverted kind rather than a slight variation of the acceptable gospel message. Now notice the strong words of verses 8 and 9. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Gentiles do not come to Christ by first embracing Judaism. Those who preach that message are to be accursed. Whoa, accursed. The Greek word there is anathema, used twice in these two verses. It means eternal damnation. Does Paul mean that literally for those Judaizing teachers? 
Well, let's put it like this. If you're teaching salvation by some other means rather than 100% grace, then you've brought the curse upon yourself. Salvation is only by grace. Paul emphatically says that no one has the authority to preach another gospel that extends the conditions to salvation. Not even angels, not even himself. The gospel is what it is, a free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing more. Paul emphatically goes so far as to pronounce a curse on those who would distort the salvation message by adding works or law-keeping to it. Verse 10 contains a word on political correctness. You'll recall that Paul's clear message of grace caused him continual problems among Jewish believers, especially the ones back in Jerusalem. The tendency of the early church was to provide a smooth transition from Judaism to Christianity. Paul was not adverse to that. His problem was the constant bombardment of Judaism on new Gentile Christians, first in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, then in Acts chapter 21 as he appeared before James and the elders in Jerusalem once again. As a matter of fact, the chief accusation against Paul in Acts chapter 21 was that he had ceased teaching that the practice of Judaism among Jewish believers was necessary to maintain favor with God after one's salvation experience. I mean, let's face it. During this first century transitional period, there was a great deal of confusion regarding the role of Judaism in Christianity. Paul was called by God to clarify this for everyone, and the book of Galatians does exactly that. So how did Paul come by this clear gospel? He explains, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God I do not lie. Afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they were hearing only... He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Some might question how Paul came by this revelation of the gospel, the gospel of grace without works. That's the gospel that Paul was preaching. Paul points out that he received it supernaturally from God, not from men, as he points out in verses 11 and 12. His calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse 1, gave him this authority. He then gives a word of personal testimony, which extends into chapter 2. The purpose of this testimony is to validate that his gospel message did not originate from the teaching of other people, but came directly from God himself by revelation. He emphasizes that he was a very devout Jew prior to salvation, a point he also makes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-6. through 6. 
Yet after God's personal training session, Paul was led to focus his ministry primarily on reaching Gentiles instead of Jews, which he points out in verse 16. There's an interesting aspect to Paul's testimony in verses 11 through 15 that may not be immediately apparent. While Paul was excelling in Judaism, verses 13 and 14, even going so far as to persecute those who were involved in the offshoot of Judaism being Christianity, he was actually building his resume for a credible ministry later on among those very same Christians. He demonstrates that he views the whole of his Jewish experience as a necessity in God's training process when he declares that his calling to the gospel ministry dates all the way back to when he was separated and called to this ministry in his mother's womb, verse 15. Paul was credible because of his extremely Jewish background. Ironically, when Paul was persecuting Christians, he was preparing for his gospel ministry. We don't have a record in the book of Acts regarding Paul's activity as specified in verse 17, but it would seem to fit with Acts chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, where we see Paul there ministering from Damascus. Paul's visit to Jerusalem in verse 18 would coincide with that of Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 31. His former running buddies, the Jews, tried to kill him on that visit. Welcome to Christianity, Paul. After that visit in verses 21 and 22, Paul explains that he ministered away from Judea in Syria and Cilicia. That would probably have been on his way back to Tarsus, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 30. The Christians in Judea only knew Paul by reputation, not by sight. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, Paul continues to describe his background. Verse 1, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain." Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man, for those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel of the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Well, Paul continues the description of where he'd been and what revelations God had given him regarding grace versus law-keeping. He points out that his Gentile sidekick, Titus, did not feel compelled to be circumcised as those Judaizers would have preferred. He acknowledges that the law message was not a message that he took to the Gentiles. The other apostles ministered to the Jews while Paul ministered to the Gentiles. Paul references his trip with Barnabas and Titus to Jerusalem. They make this journey around 49 AD, 
and it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, although some scholars believe that instead this is the relief visit to Jerusalem found in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. With the Acts 15 visit seeming more likely to be the reference here, at least 17 years have passed since Paul had gotten saved. For 14 of those years, Paul had been preaching the gospel primarily to Gentiles. He summarizes this appearance in Jerusalem by simply saying in verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul's mention of false brethren in verse 4 demonstrates the friction that existed regarding the preaching of the gospel, the gospel without law-keeping in those early days. We tend to believe that false brethren may be a reference to people without Christ. However, Paul is obviously talking about Judaizers who joined Paul's ministry under false pretenses, portraying that they were endorsing Paul's message when they were actually just gathering evidence against him. They may have been misdirected believers who were unclear regarding what part of the law of Moses should play in the lives of these new Gentile converts. As a matter of fact, Luke characterizes some of these Judaizing teachers in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, when he reports this. He says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They were believers, but they were confused regarding the role of the law of Moses in the salvation process. Then there was the dispute recorded in verses 11 through 14 of Galatians chapter 2, and I read, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain came from James, he would eat with Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy." But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Well, here Paul cites a dispute between Peter and himself, which took place in Antioch, that's 300 miles north of Jerusalem up in Syria. Peter, while visiting Paul, had acted a little hypocritical when Jews from the Jerusalem church showed up, the timing here is not certain, but it appears to be an incident which took place after the Jerusalem council described in the verses that we read a few moments ago. Peter had been freely eating with the Gentile believers with Paul until these Jewish visitors rolled in. Then he withdrew from the Gentiles. Paul says of Peter on that occasion in Antioch in verse 11, he says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Other Jews followed Peter's lead, we see in verse 13, the hypocrisy of which disturbed Barnabas. Paul did not want to see the grace message compromised. Obviously, many of the Jewish Christians still regarded Gentiles to be unclean. Paul sees a need to combat that notion. Verse 14 begins Paul's verbal reply on that occasion to Peter when he differentiates their experience of Paul and Peter from the Gentile believers by saying, speaking of themselves, Paul and Peter, we, Paul and Peter, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. That's in verse 15. Well, that's the kickoff. Next, the heavy-duty doctrine of grace without law. 
As a matter of fact, pay close attention to the usage of the pronouns we and our as opposed to the you and your in the remaining portion of this letter. Paul mentions the contrast between the Jewish salvation experience, that of Paul and Peter, as opposed to the Gentile salvation experience by using these pronouns to do so, as he does so in the very next verse, which is verse 15. So let's look at the contrast of grace and law as we begin reading now with verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Well, here is Paul's very specific pronoun usage, the pronoun I that I just mentioned at the end of the um, section above. In verse 15, Paul says, We, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles... He's comparing the Jewish pre-salvation experience of Peter and himself with that of the Gentiles who were not under the law prior to salvation. This we, meaning Jews, versus you, meaning Gentiles, comparison occurs numerous times in the next couple of chapters. As Paul continues the account of his reply to Peter, here are some great verses regarding grace over law. Paul was adamant about this. I can't refrain from making a little prepositional distinction here, an important distinction. Notice verse 16, which says in the, and now I'm quoting from the King James Version. The King James Version of verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Also notice verse 20 in the King James Version. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In both verses, the Greek genitive case of the noun is used, and it should be properly rendered of instead of in as the proper preposition to precede it. Now, the New King James Version incorrectly substitutes the preposition in for the preposition of in both of those verses. The genitive case is never correctly translated in. So why so picky, you may wonder? Well, here it is. We're not justified because we muster up enough faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Rather, when we choose to receive Christ as Savior, the faith of Christ comes as part of that salvation package. Therefore, it's not the quality of our faith that makes us righteous before God, but rather the quality of Jesus' faith. Some translations have disregarded the genitive case and the concept taught here by translating these occurrences as faith in Jesus Christ in verse 16 and faith in the Son of God in verse 20, as does the New King James Version. 
an innocent oversight, I'm sure. The usage of the preposition in makes the Greek preposition appear to be in the locative case. However, it is indisputably genitive and should be translated of. To incorrectly translate these verses here with the word in would seem to indicate that the quality of one's faith in Jesus Christ plays a part in salvation. Absolutely not. When we provide the willingness to trust Christ as Savior, Jesus provides the saving faith that's sufficient to do the job. Now, you might be wondering, why am I making such a big deal out of the difference between faith of and faith in in these two verses? Well, it boils down to this question. Is salvation a supernatural experience facilitated by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, or is it a process of educating an individual to the point that they can muster up enough faith to trust Christ as Savior? Now, Jesus said in John 6:44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus describes the process of salvation to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 1-8. through 8. He calls it a born-again experience there. That clearly makes salvation the supernatural act of God, the process of which is identified in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And that's where Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, where the Jews are Greeks, where the slaves are free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Salvation is a faith issue, and God provides the faith to trust Christ as Savior through the salvation ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is, by the way, in contrast to the misguided teaching that there are certain tenets of the Christian faith which must be understood before a person can authentically receive Christ as Savior. Now, here's what we know for certain regarding the relationship between the Word of God and salvation. Romans 10:17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That part is supernatural as well. When folks without Christ are exposed to the Word of God, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit miraculously facilitates their entry into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit's baptism. That baptism is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Holy Spirit baptism. I really can't tell you how much the convert needed to have understood about the tenets of the faith before salvation. I just depend upon God to sort it all out. Now, here is the biggest danger of making salvation about education rather than the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and that's the child's salvation experience. Adults everywhere are being told that their childhood experience of trusting Christ as Savior was insufficient because they didn't fully understand what they were doing at the time. I even heard one well-known speaker and Bible commentator declare that salvation is just not a child's proposition. That was in response to a question asked him regarding how much a child needs to understand in order to be saved. Now, here's the bottom line. Salvation is the supernatural act of God, and that's where the Word of God is presented, and the Holy Spirit provides the faith that causes one to accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's why it is important to understand verse 16 as the faith of Jesus Christ, and verse 20 as the faith of the Son of God. Verse 17 has been deemed ambiguous by many scholars, but when we read it in context, in the context of verses 15 to 21, Paul's logic seems quite easy to follow. Verse 17 says, 
But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. Well, first of all, notice in verse 16 what his words are intended to refute when he uses this phrase, a man is not justified by the works of the law. And again in verse 16 when he says, not by the works of the law. And once again in verse 16 when he says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. If we don't see anything else in that verse, it ought to be that one cannot be justified, in other words, made righteous before God. One cannot be justified through the works of the law. However, he's replying to Peter in these verses regarding those who are trying to make keeping the law part of the salvation proposition. So verse 17 is a hypothetical presented to Peter. In essence, he's asking Peter this. We've told these new converts that they are justified by the faith of Christ, but now are we making them guilty again because they don't also keep the law? Then he adds, if that's the case, doesn't that make Christ the minister of sin? In other words, a sinful life without the law. And then the strong negative in Greek to deny this hypothetical, and that is meganoita. That's translated in the New King James Certainly not. And in the King James Version, God forbid. A very strong negative. Verses 18 and 19 confirm that understanding when Paul says, For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. When he says, Build again those things which I destroyed, he's talking about a life built on the works of the law. He follows with this doctrinal position that he is dead to the law. Now, according to verse 20, Paul's righteousness is a product of Christ living in him, or he says, Christ lives in me. That is to be contrasted with the keeping the law as is evidenced when Paul declares in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Look, can Paul be any clearer than he is being right here? Law-keeping has nothing to do with righteousness before God. In verse 20, Paul emphasizes his righteousness without the law of Moses by saying this, I am crucified with Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he said it like this, Having wiped out the handwriting requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Being crucified with Christ, as we see here in verse 20, means accepting that Christ's death on the cross negated the condemnatory effects of the law against us. Paul again said in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's not clear how much of Paul's words in verses 15 to 21 were actually stated to Peter directly. Perhaps just verses 15 and 16. Verses 17 to 21 could be a greater explanation regarding his remarks to Peter. Then, chapter 3, salvation. How much works are involved? Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you 
Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Now, did Paul just insult their intellect in verse 1 when he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? The Greek adjective foolish there comes from the Greek anatos, which holds the connotation of not using one's mind to think rationally. The verb bewitched is likewise interesting from the Greek baskino, which holds the connotation of practicing magic. That makes Paul's question in verse 1 rather inflammatory. He says, Who cast a magic spell on y'all to make you think so irrationally? You must admit it's frustrating to explain a concept and then be assured that your audience understands it thoroughly, only to find out later that they're confused again. They'd been ambushed by these Judaizers and had fallen off the grace wagon. So let's go over it again in verse 2. He says, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In other words, did you get saved by works or did you get saved by faith? There's that word again in verse 3, foolish, anatos, irrational thinking. He says, Does it make sense that you were saved by faith, but now you're staying saved by the law? Just imagine the reaction of the congregation as this letter is read to them in their public gathering. Did Paul just tell us that the only way we could arrive at such irrational conclusions would have been that someone cast a spell on us to confuse our thinking? Well, yeah, I think that's what he just said. Paul questions their progress in the faith in verses 4 and 5. The suffering these Galatians had endured because of their faith in the finished work of Christ, having rejected the law as a means of salvation, was that suffering to be offset now as many of them apparently succumbed to the constant barrage of works-based salvation doctrine? Did you originally respond to salvation by faith or not? So here's the big question. How much of our salvation in Jesus Christ is dependent on works? Well, the answer is none. One more clarification. Once saved, are you kept saved by works? Answer, absolutely not. And here's a verse that proves it. It says, speaking of Abraham, even Abraham was saved by faith and not works. Verse 6 is a quotation, as a matter of fact, from Genesis 15:6. That verse says, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Salvation has always been about faith. It never was about keeping the law or being good. Notice two contrasting terms used here, spirit and flesh. Now notice that spirit is associated here with faith, and flesh is associated with law. Paul works very hard in these verses to be very clear that no one is made righteous by the law of Moses, nor are they kept righteous by the law of Moses? How some Bible teachers today are able to justify mixing a little law with their walk as believers can only be answered one way, and that's this. They just haven't studied the book of Galatians. Paul builds upon Abraham's experience of imputed righteousness in verses 7 through 9. You see, Abraham precedes the law of Moses. That makes Abraham's position of faith particularly meaningful here. 
Verse 7, children of Abraham are such by faith rather than works. Then a theological bombshell is to be found in verses 8 and 9 when Paul makes a linkage between God's covenant with Abraham and salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at this. Notice the words of God to Abraham from which Paul draws in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'll read those verses. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Paul quotes exactly the ending of that covenant that God made with Abraham. He develops it further over the next few verses, but let me go ahead and give you the bottom line to Paul's comments. The promise to Abraham when he says, "...and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed," well, that's a direct reference to the blessing that everyone, including Gentiles, will receive as they accept Jesus Christ as Savior. That's in verse 9. Now, hey, that's big. Look at the next section of verses, and you'll see Paul develop that concept further. As I mentioned in the discussion of chapter 2, verse 15 earlier, it's important to know who's who in this passage. The Galatian Gentiles are the you in verses 1 through 7. Paul, as a Jew, is going to be using the we and our comparison in the next passage of Scripture that we're getting ready to look at. You must pay close attention to this contrast in order to properly understand the difference between the experience of Jews and Gentiles prior to salvation. So, who's under this curse? We look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 for the answer to that. Verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith." Notice Paul's strong words of verse 10. Again, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law keepers have a curse upon them. He validates that statement by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. That was to be the pledge the people of Israel were to shout out between the mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, when they moved into Canaan. Paul's point here is to make them understand the futility of thinking that adding some law-keeping to faith could do any good whatsoever. Any shortcoming in one's efforts, well, that results in a curse. In verse 11, it's back to Abraham and his position before God when Paul declares, the just shall live by faith. Now, the concept of justification by faith is not a doctrine unique to Paul's letters to the Galatians. Look at the following verses, Habakkuk 2.4 says, Behold, the proud his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, of course, that's the one we've been looking at, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And then Hebrews 10.38, 
where the writer says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Individual salvation has always been a faith proposition. Many people even today get very confused about the purpose of the law of Moses given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. That law was the legal instrument of the nation of Israel, and it was never intended to make people individually worthy or spiritually righteous before God. We see in verse 12 that Paul is quite adamant about the spiritual condition of those who think keeping the law makes them righteous or keeps them righteous. In fact, they're under a curse instead of being made righteous. Verse 13 makes a point that Christ redeemed us from this curse of the law by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. So who exactly was under this curse of the law prior to salvation? Well, as a Gentile prior to salvation, I was certainly not on my way to heaven, but I had not been subjected to the curse of the law as was the Jewish experience. The crucifixion of Christ upon the cross displayed Christ in the proper context of having been cursed according to Jewish law. A death by stoning would not have fulfilled this Old Testament picture contained in the law of Moses. Only the death of our Savior on a cross could have fulfilled the Old Testament law. Verse 14 then concludes that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. As you can see, the net result of Jesus' death on the cross is salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, now understand the whole process that Paul's taken us through so far. He says, first of all, that a curse was pronounced in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, on those Jews who broke the law of Moses in any way. He says that in verse 10. But we and Abraham are justified by faith, according to verse 11. Law and faith are different, according to verse 12. A commitment to the law means never, never, never breaking the law. That's the point of verse 12 also. The curse of verse 10, because everyone breaks the law, was reversed by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then finally, Abraham's covenant with God of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, that covenant ensures that Gentiles are saved. In other words, they receive the promise of the Spirit, according to the Scripture there in verse 14, through faith. We see in verses 15 through 29 that God keeps His promises. Verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet, if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator." Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. 
Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. But you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, Paul shifts gears a little bit in this argument, beginning with verse 15. His tone lightens when he says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Well, here comes an analogy from everyday life. That's what after the manner of men means. Let's talk about covenants. A covenant is a signed or confirmed contract, meaning a covenant, between men, and it cannot be nullified. That's the analogy from everyday life upon which Paul will build in the next few verses. Now for the fine print of the contract or the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis. The specification of the word seed being singular rather than seeds being plural. That's the distinction. That's the specification. Notice the exact wording of verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed, singular, were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, uh, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So Paul here makes a distinction between the singular and the plural usage of the word seed in the promises made to Abraham. Well, here are those verses, if you're wondering. Now, God's speaking to Abraham in Genesis 13:16, and it says, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. And then in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, here's what it says. Then he, God, brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then in Genesis chapter 16, verse 10, it says, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. However, the specific verse to which Paul is certainly referring in his comments here is Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Here's what that verse says. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So while some of the seed references or descendant references given to Abraham obviously pertain to physical blessings given to the Hebrews themselves, Paul uses a fine point of Hebrew grammar here to extend the promise of spiritual blessings to all of those who trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other words, we have salvation today in Christ because of the promise that God made to Abraham. The people through the ages who have been blessed with salvation in Jesus Christ are innumerable, just as Paul points out in verse 16. Paul emphasizes in verse 17 that the promise was given to Abraham by faith, and the law, which came 430 years later, cannot change God's mode for obtaining righteousness before God. He restates in different words the same proposition in verse 18. And that's this, the law of Moses does not supersede the grace of Abraham. One might ask then, as in verse 19, what's the point of the law? Well, the answer is it was a temporary measure awaiting its complete fulfillment by Christ on the cross. And, by the way, it was given to the Jews. Moses was the mediator of that first covenant, 
but God alone is the mediator of the covenant of salvation by grace, according to verse 20. Now, with that established, Paul sees a need to properly place the law of Moses into our Christian experience. So, first of all, let's see what the law is not in verse 21. The law of Moses is not against the promises of God, as in those made to Abraham. The law of Moses is not able to offer eternal life. Verse 22 says, But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Obviously, no one has been made righteous by keeping the law of Moses because all are under sin. Verse 23 is applicable to Jews in Paul's day. It says, But before faith came, we, meaning Jews, were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Incidentally, this is a Jewish-only experience, thus the usage of the pronoun we in verse 23, as in we Jews. Paul's Gentile converts were not kept under the law. That's the point of this whole epistle. Verses 24 through 26 continue an expansion on this Jewish reality before faith in Christ when Paul explains that to the Jew, the law served as one's schoolmaster. However, verse 25 plainly says that that, that schoolmaster was no longer necessary after one trusts Jesus Christ as Savior. It's critically important to notice the usages of the pronouns we and our in verses 24 and 25. That's a reference to the Jewish experience under the law of Moses prior to salvation. But then notice verse 26. There's a reference to the Galatian Gentiles with the statement, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Likewise, we see the you in verses 27 to 29. You get very confused about the Gentile versus Jewish pre-salvation experience if you don't pay close attention to the usage of the personal pronouns that are used in chapters 2, 3, and 4. Finally, Jews, Gentiles, we are all alike after salvation, saved into one body of Christ as children of God. That's according to verses 26 to 28. Verse 29 caps it off. It says, And if you, Gentiles, are Christ, then you, Gentiles, are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay, it's back to Abraham. Even though not necessarily a physical Jew, all who have received Christ as Savior are beneficiaries of the seed promises, those seed promises made to Abraham in Genesis, just as the Jews are. So, let's review. How much of the law of Moses are believers required to keep in order to become righteous or to stay righteous before God? Here's your answer. None, zero, zilch, not, goose egg, zippo, nil. No. You do not keep the law of Moses as believers in order to become righteous or to stay righteous before God. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.